and clap. <laughs> that was weird. Good morning. You guys doing all right? Very good. Excellent. I am very excited to be here. As you heard Cherie mention, you're stuck with me for the month of July. And we're going to, yes, we're going to take a short break from the book of John. And we're going to study during this month the first chapter of the book of Daniel. Okay, um, I have been preparing for this since Mark, uh, Pastor Mark asked me to come and, and spend this time with you. I believe that this chapter has a very relevant message for all of us now in, in the times that we're living right now. Okay, so let me pray for us and we're going to study today the God of Daniel. Father, um, I just thank you, Father, for your love, for allowing me to come and share your word uh, with this beautiful family. And I ask that you would prepare our hearts, Lord, just soften our hearts. Let us receive your word, work in us. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I was having a conversation with some uh, parents of preteens. This guy had a preteen and a teenager. And, and he made this comment to me. He said, you know, I think our, our youth today are facing a lot harder situations than we ever faced, which I agree. You know, when I was a teenager, there was no internet, cell phones, you know, there was barely electricity. So, you know, we were not facing the same challenges uh, that our youth is facing today. But then he said something interesting. He said, I think we should give them a break. I think we should be a little bit more understanding because, you know, who knows what would have happened if we had to face those things. Since, since things are tougher, we should kind of be more understanding to them. See, the problem with that line of thinking is the next thing that you're going to think is, well, maybe if the biblical characters that we so admire were living in our times, they would have adjusted to our times as well and wouldn't have been as firm, you know, as admirable as, as they were. And people that have uh, kept thinking under that line of thinking end up concluding with this thought. They think, well, that means the Bible is obsolete. You know, the Bible should adjust to our times. You know, it, it should limit itself to spiritual things. But outside of the spiritual area, you know, the Bible, you know, we shouldn't have to conform to the Bible in every other area of our lives. You know, so people that do that, usually what they end up doing is they divide their life in, in two areas. They have their, their spiritual life and they have the secular life. So, you know, when I'm in church, yes, I have communion with God and I worship him and I feel his presence beautiful. And when I read my Bible and I have my time with him or I go with my small group, that's all very nice. But when I am out in the world, then everything changes. You cannot expect me to go to work and align to the same things. I have had conversations with businessmen that say to me, there is no way you can do business in today's world if you align 100% of the Bible, There's, it's just not possible. You can't expect that of me. And this is why then they try to transfer it to their kids. You can't expect them to go to school and stand firm in their beliefs. They're going to be bullied. They're going to be ridiculed. You should give them a break. So the conclusion of that line of thinking is, it is not possible to be faithful to God in every area of our lives in the world that we live in. If you have ever thought that, if it ever crossed your mind, 
studying the life of Daniel will absolutely destroy that argument in your head. I mean, destroy it. Daniel was a very young man. He was about probably between 14 and 16 years old when he was taken captive to Babylon. And, and I don't know if that says much to you, but Babylon, uh, not only was it the capital of the most powerful empire at the time, but also it represents the worst perversion possible in the world at any time. See, the Bible talks about Babylon in Revelation 17 and calls it the mother of all the abomination of the world. The Bible calls it the mother of all prostitutes, of all abominations. And this is where Daniel was taken captive at 14, 15 years of age. Now, we're going to concentrate today in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, but I want to read to you chapters 1 to 6 so you see what happened with Daniel, and then we're going to study certain things, okay? Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, so this is what happened to Daniel. Now, you know, it is very often the case that people will read passages like the, the whole chapter we're going to study and misinterpret and come up to the wrong conclusions with some of the things that are taught there. And this is why. Because what they do is they want to go to the details of what happened and study just the detail, take it out of the context of the whole chapter or the whole book. The only way that you can truly interpret correctly a passage of the Bible is if you look at the details under the light of the whole passage and of the whole scripture. And then you can be sure that you will never deviate from the whole message of the Bible. So what we're going to do today is we're going to study some aspects that are going to help us later understand the details that we're going to study for the rest of the series. Today, I want us to see the historical context. We're going to see the basic theme and purpose of the book. And then we're going to answer the question, why is it important to study the life of Daniel? Okay, so let's start with the historical context of the book of Daniel. See, the first thing that Daniel is going to do is give us historical facts. He's going to place his history in time. And this is very important for us to notice because, you see, one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis became a believer, he was already an adult and he didn't believe in God. A friend kept pushing him to read the Bible. And we, when he first read it, realized that the Bible doesn't read like a story. It doesn't read like a legend. If you read stories, and, and he was a literature teacher, you know, stories usually begin with, once upon a time in a land far, far away, you know, very vague. But the Bible doesn't read like that. It gives you facts. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 1, what Daniel does. He says, in the third year of the reign of Jehokim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, so Daniel is telling us exactly the time and what is it that happened. Two cultures cross paths on this verse. Now, in order to understand exactly what's going on here, we have to do what some directors do in movies. I don't know if you've seen movies where two entities, maybe people, maybe companies, maybe nations, you know, are going to cross paths. And what they do is they develop the, the story of each one of them separately so that you understand what's happening when they cross paths. And this is what we have to do to understand what's happening here. Okay? So we're talking about the people of Judah and we're talking about the people of Babylon, okay? Let, let's talk about Judah first. Uh, you should know the story of the people of Israel. We have gone through it many times, so I'm going to go through it super fast. You know that the people of God started when God called Abraham to the promised land. He believed in God, so God promises Abraham that he's going to bless all the families of the earth through his descendants. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 children that become the 12 tribes of Israel, and for reasons we have no time to discuss, they end up in Egypt. They are welcome when they first arrive, but a couple of generations later, nobody remembers why they're there. They start multiplying. They enslave them. So God sends a deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. He sends Moses. Moses brings them out, and this is the first thing I want you to remember. Right after they get out of Egypt, three days later, God gives them the law. He tells them, this is how you're going to live. And you have to understand that the law is not something God gives the people of Israel just to make their life miserable. He knows that the law is good for them. If they follow the law, they're going to prosper. Their hearts are going to be full of joy. And the nations around are going to ask, how you guys do it? We want the same. And then you will be able to talk to them about God. And they're going to believe. They're going to know that there is a God. And they're going to follow it. Okay? So what God is basically asking them is, be different. Don't adjust to the world. Don't just follow the same habits of everyone else. Live according to this. But he also tells them, if you do not obey, there will be consequences. And he sends them messenger after messenger after messenger. And the message is always the same. I'm going to give you one example and pay attention to how it starts. This is Jeremiah 25, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah says, each time the message was this. What is he saying? Every time that the message came from God, the message was the same message. What's the message? Turn from the evil road you are traveling and from the evil things you're doing. Only then will I let you live in the land that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever. Do not provoke my anger by worshiping idols you made with your own hands. So that's the message, okay? Don't provoke my anger by worshiping idols. So you know what happens after he gives them the law, sends them to the promised land. They refuse to enter. They wander around the desert for 40 years, and they finally enter. Led by Joshua, who divides the land among all the tribes of Israel. Then Joshua dies. Comes the, the period of time known as Judges, where everyone does whatever they want. So it's chaotic. They are suffering, and they claim to God, and they say, what we need is a king. If you give us a king, he's going to make sure that we're in line. God says, no, 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 look at me as the king. But they said, no, 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 we need a king. So he says, fine. And he gives them Saul. Saul is a terrible king, so he takes him up, and then he gives them David. David is an excellent king, and under his rule, Israel prospers. They become the most powerful nation on earth at that time. 
The nations around fear them, respect them, pay tribute to them. But then when David dies, his son Solomon becomes the king. Solomon begins really well, but he ends up really bad. You know, he marries a lot of women who are not from his nation, something God had told him not to do, because then they're going to corrupt your heart, he said. But Solomon marries 700 women, and he has 300 concubines, many of them from other nations, and starts building temples to other gods inside of Jerusalem. So then Solomon dies, and the one that comes to power is his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is even worse, okay? He offends God, but not only God, but he angers the people of Israel. If you remember not long ago, we talked about this. You know, the, the 10 tribes that are on the north come to talk to him and say, please lower the taxes. And instead of lowering them, he increases the taxes. So they get angry and they separate. And they become two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The people of the north have for many years different dynasties that ruled them. None of them from the line of David. And every king on the north offends God every time worse and worse and worse. So just as he had promised in the year 732 before Christ, the king of Assyria comes and invades the northern kingdom and destroys it completely. They take captive all the men and those 10 tribes disappear forever. They never get restored because they kept disobeying God. Now, the kingdom in the south, it's interesting because they continue living independently for another 145 years. All the kings are from the line of David, but even though they saw the kingdom of the north being destroyed for disobedience, many of the kings in the south also offend God. You know, they keep doing what offends the Lord. And 18 kings after Rehoboam comes to the power of Jehoiakim, the king that Daniel is talking about in the first verse. In the, in the year 609 before Christ, he becomes the king. Okay? We're going to leave Judah there because that's when they're going to cross with Babylon. Let's talk about Babylon. How is it that Babylon became to power? Because if you notice, the ones that destroyed the kingdom in the north was Assyria. So what happened there? See, Assyria was the most powerful country in the area. And the second most powerful country was Egypt, which was way in the south. Okay? But in the year 627 before Christ, the king of Assyria dies. He had had in Babylon a puppet king that was completely subjugated to him. But when the king of Assyria dies, there's a man in Babylon called Nabopolassar. There's going to be a pop test at the end, so remember these names, okay? Nabopolassar, you know, plans a rebellion against the puppet king and overthrows him. And he becomes the king of Babylon. And then the armies of Assyria tried to stop him. But Nabopolassar is so brilliant, he's a strategist, so he com- continues to defeat them and defeat them and defeat them in many battles. And he starts taking over and over and over until the year 612 before Christ. You know, Babylon becomes the most powerful country in the world. And the ones that get very nervous are the Egyptians, because they were the second power. And they start seeing how Babylon starts growing and growing growing and growing. So they decide to join forces with whatever is left of the um, Assyrian army to challenge Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar doesn't wait for them to come. He sends his armies commanded by his son, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, leading the armies of Babylon, goes all the way to the south, faces the Egyptians, and in one of the most important battles of ancient history in 605 before Christ, called the 
the, the Battle of Carchemish, he destroys the Egyptian army. I mean, he obliterates it. Some of them try to run, they catch them in Hamat, and they, from that moment on, Egypt, Egypt never again becomes a powerful nation. They destroy their army. But it so happened that after he wins this battle, he receives news from Babylon that his father has died. So he needs to go back to Babylon because he's going to be crowned the king. And he starts going back towards Babylon. And this is when the stories cross. Because it's at this moment when he's walking between Babylon and Egypt, right in the middle, is Jerusalem. So he's walking back towards Babylon and he arrives to Jerusalem and he thinks, this looks like a good city to invade, you know, and he besieges Jerusalem. And at the moment, Jehoiakim surrenders to him and allows him to take just a few people with him and some articles of the temple. As we're going to see later on, this, this man is a fool and then he's going to try to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar who will come later and destroy Jerusalem. Okay, but these are the historical facts. The stubbornness of Jehoiakim on one hand that kept offending God. And on the other hand, we have Nebuchadnezzar who without knowing has become an instrument of God. But this is historical. Let's go to point number two. What is the theme and purpose of the book of Daniel? See, I want you to notice the difference between verse one and verse two. In verse one, we have historical facts. In verse 2, we have the theological point of view from Daniel as of why did this happen. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. See, what Daniel is saying is, the fall of Jerusalem did not happen because the armies of Nebuchadnezzar were very powerful, and he was a brilliant strategist. They, it, this happened because God himself delivered Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. So, so this is the central theme of the book. See, the book of Daniel is very complicated, but the theme is very simple. This is the theme. The sovereignty of God over the kingdom of men. God is the Lord of the history of men. He's sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Okay, what we're seeing here is the will of God in a form of a decree. These things happen because God ordained them. He had warned them over and over to their prophets. I want you to see what it says in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. It says, During Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded the land of Judah. Jehoiakim surrendered and paid him tribute for three years, but then rebelled. Then the Lord sent bands of Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Judah to destroy it, just as the Lord had promised through his prophets. See, we have a righteous God, a good God, a loving God, but a God that does not take sin lightly, not even from his own people. And maybe it is a scandal in your head that it was God himself who ordained these things. But this is what you have to understand. I want to read from, uh, to you the, the commentary that Warren Wiersbe wrote about this passage. He said, God would rather have his people to live in shame, captive in a pagan country, than living as pagans in the Holy Land, desecrating his name. See, Nebuchadnezzar became an instrument that God used to teach a lesson to his people. And I can assure you one thing, 
Nebuchadnezzar did not see himself as an instrument of God. He didn't even believe in our God. But I want you to see what God had warned the people of Israel years before these things happened. Through the prophet Jeremiah, look at Jeremiah 25, verses 8, 9, and 11. Says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and this nation shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Before Nebuchadnezzar was even king, actually before even his father had become king of Babylon, through Jeremiah, God names the king of Babylon by name. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, and says, my servant. God uses whoever he wants for his purposes. And notice that he gives us exactly the amount of time that the rule of Nebuchadnezzar is going to happen on top of the people of Israel. It says, 70 years. And 70 years after the captivity, just as Jeremiah prophesied, the great empire of Babylon that seemed invincible and indestructible falls into the hands of the Persian empire and they are destroyed and disappear from history forever. And I want you to understand what happens to Israel because the people of Israel are going to be allowed to go back to the promised land. But the independent nation, theocratical nation of Israel will never be restored the same. It will never be the same again. And this is what we need to learn as a lesson from sin. But the theme of the book is that the history of the world is in the hands of God. He is the one that decides what happened. See, I think that it's very often the case that we as men, you know, mankind, we think that we are the ones that, that cause the events of history. You know, I, I can assure you right now, you know, just look at the scenery of the world. What's happening in Russia and Ukraine and China and North Korea and in our own country. And, and we think men are playing with power and doing certain things. But Daniel reminds us over and over and over that he's the most high God who even uses people that do not recognize him as God. See, in the chapter uh, 2 of the book of Daniel, you have read the book, you remember this story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he demands of his wise men you know, to explain the dream, but he doesn't want to tell them what, he, what was the dream. He's like, you're so wise, tell me what was my dream, and then explain it. And the only one that can explain it is Daniel. Read the chapter. It's very interesting. But here are the words of Daniel when he thanks God for helping him decipher the dream. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholar. Daniel has very clear who is in control. Who is causing all these things to happen? And what he's showing us is that the people that believe in him in that way, when you believe that he's truly in control, then you live with confidence in the midst of adversity because you know he's sitting at his throne. So I want you to see, and you will see it more later as we go with this chapter, other Israelites 
were brought along with Daniel and they were placed in the same training program that he was placed and they were seduced by the Babylonians to live like they lived. But Daniel and his friends, they never doubted that God was in control and was with them even there in Babylon, so they remained faithful. Which brings us to the purpose of this book. What is the purpose? The purpose is to show us the strength and security this knowledge can produce in the heart of a believer. If you truly believe that God is totally in control, nothing escapes him, nothing catches him by surprise, that is going to give you strength, security, peace, and faithfulness. So this is when Daniel and his friends enter into the scenery. There in Babylon, there is what the Bible calls a remnant. You know, a small group of people that will not bow down to idolatry, to paganism. You know, Israel was defeated as a nation, but the true spiritual Israel remains faithful to the covenant. And even though they were few and the pressures were enormous, they never gave in. So remembering that God is always in control will give you strength and security. Look, um, when I look around to the world that we're living right now, it is very clear that there is very powerful groups and very powerful nations whose philosophies and beliefs are being spread out and they're starting to be pushed into our very own culture. And, and when you see, you know, the strength that they come with and how they're succeeding at pervading it, you may be able to, 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 to think that the people of God are just going to collapse and, and, and start adjusting in every situation towards them. But you just have to remember that these groups, these nations, with all their power and all their glory, are going to disappear. Just as the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you know, the, the Persians, the Greek, the Romans, all those empires that were completely against the plans of God were disappeared from this earth. History of humankind is going to flow into the eternal kingdom of the Messiah. And the people that put their faith on God through his son, Jesus Christ, Daniel says, at that time they will shine like stars in the firmament. God's plan cannot be frustrated. Things will happen. And you have to remember, the final victory belongs to our God because he has all the power in his hand. But I guess what you need to understand is it's never been easy to remain faithful. It wasn't easy for them back then. You know, the, the practices of the people in Egypt where God got them out from and the practices of the people in Canaan where they moved to and the practice of the people in Babylon, where they were taken, are not very different from things that are happening in many cities today. But even in the middle of these circumstances, God expects us to be faithful. This is what Daniel and their friends did. They kept themselves pure, holy, and they gave an excellent testimony of the God that they served. So why is it important to study Daniel? So if you read the book, you're going to realize that Daniel had contact throughout his life working at the palace with four different kings. Two of them were Babylonians, and the other two were the Persian kings that came and took over that empire. And the four of them, in their dealings with Daniel and his friends, had to acknowledge the greatness of the God of Daniel. It is very interesting. Four kids that became adults 
that decided to remain faithful to God had a huge impact in two empires. They changed the course of history with their influence over these kings. Now, there are many reasons why we should read the whole book, but this chapter, there's two very important reasons. Number one, Daniel is the model of a faithful person in a fallen world. See, Daniel is a model. Um, the Apostle Paul in Philippians says that we should find models that live according to his teachings. Daniel is an excellent model, and it can serve in two ways. One, you can learn from his life, and the other one, you can examine your life by comparing it to Daniel's life. As, as we will study in detail later on, Daniel and his friends became, not became, stayed faithful to God in a very hostile environment where everything seemed to be against them. Does the environment look like that nowadays? Well, this is what Daniel had to, had to face. And if they could do it, then we can do it because as they knew, God is still in control. So in this way, Daniel is an excellent model because he, he didn't hide from the world. See, he wasn't in a monastery hiding from the evil around him. He was a statesman. He worked in the palace with all the intrigues and the politics, and he remained faithful. I have noticed that a lot of people think that if only their circumstances were different, they could be more faithful. You know, like uh, sometimes I talk to single people, and they say to me, just that if only I got married, I wouldn't have these temptations. They would stop. Married people? Anyone relates to that? Is it true? No more temptations because you got married? But they think that. They think if I get married, then no temptation. You know, I um, once talking to a, a guy that was working in high corporate levels, he said to me, no, it's just that the, the pressure of the corporate world, it's a jungle, man. If I had a, you know, maybe like a blue-collar job, my temptations would be less. Really? You think that it depends on the level? I actually had a guy once who told me, my wife is a stay-at-home mom. She has it a lot easier. I have to deal with the temptations of the world here at work, but she has it easy at home. Really? Go take care of your kids for a month. Let's see if you don't have the temptation to murder someone. You know, it's like... It's, like, it, it's never been easy because you... you and this is one of the things that we have to remember. Being faithful to God has never depended on things being easy, ever. Because you know what's the truth? We all have our personal Babylon. We are all surrounded by certain pressures, by certain temptations. And it's true. You know, today's world, it's a lot more hostile than it was 50 years ago. But back then, we had our pressures and we had our temptations. A little bit ago, I mentioned to you that the life of Daniel can be used to examine yourself. Here's a sovereign thought. Let me read to you what the prophet Ezekiel wrote. Ezekiel was a prophet that was contemporary to Daniel. He was actually a little bit younger than Daniel, okay? And, and listen to his words. God is talking to Ezekiel, says, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply, and send famine upon it, and kill its people and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. In a country 
where everyone is rebelling against God, he says only three men, Noah, who was ridiculed for decades for building an ark so far away from the ocean, Job, who lost absolutely everything he had in one day and remained faithful to God, and Daniel, who remained faithful in the middle of the worst possible city in the world. And when I read this verse, you know what I wondered? I thought if I had been one of the captives in Babylon, would God have named me? Would I be in that list? See, Daniel was a man with exactly the same nature that we have. Had the same temptations, but by the grace of God, he did what he did. And you have to remember the grace of God is available to you today because our God has not changed. So that's the first reason. Daniel is an excellent model to test yourself against and to learn from. The second one is because Daniel is an example for all believers regardless of their age. Yes, he was very young when he got to Babylon. But at the end of his book, he was about 90 years old. And he remained faithful through all his life, through really hard circumstances. So all of us, regardless of our age, we have something to learn from this man. And you want to know why Daniel could do what he did? Because he explains it in, in, in his book. See, the second part of the book, it's a book of prophecy that is very complex. Right in the middle of chapter 11, which is the middle of the longest prophecy recorded in the Bible, it's a three-chapter prophecy, Daniel explains how is the enemy going to entice some people and why some will not fall for it. Pay attention to these words. Daniel 11, verse 32. He, talking about the enemy, will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. That is what makes the difference between a strong and active faith and a weak, mediocre and passive faith, the knowledge of God, the personal experiential knowledge of God. This is something that we have talked about many times. The only way that you're going to get strength and guidance and peace from God is if you know him personally, not through other people, but personally. And if we are going to overcome these philosophies, these belief systems that is pervading in our society, you're going to need to know God personally, just like Daniel and his friends did. So this is what this book is. It's an invitation to have the courage to live differently, to not conform to this world. You know, the life of Daniel, it's, it's, it's an encouragement to get out of the crowd, not just follow the crowd because they all do it, then it's fine. And it's my prayer that studying this chapter in the life of Daniel is going to speak so loud to your heart that a lot of Daniels and Daniels, you know, because apply to both, will come out of this series. This is an injection of courage, of comfort for all of us. The great lesson of, of, of this chapter that we're going to read is that the God of Daniel deserves our love. Deserves our, our trust, our worship. And doing that is the only way that we're going to stay faithful in this world full of darkness. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what we're going to do here because the purpose of this study is not to revere Daniel. Daniel was just a person. 
The purpose is that you will get to know God and serve God like Daniel did. That you understand that the God of Daniel can be your God right now through his son, Jesus Christ. See, Daniel was a sinner just like you and I, but he placed his faith on his God and on the promise that God had made to his ancestors that one day he was going to send a savior to redeem him. You and I, we don't need to put our faith in the promise because that promise has been fulfilled. So we put our faith in the cross where Jesus was sent by God to die, carry with him all the wrath for all our sin and restore our relationship with him. And if we place our faith in him, then we have not only access to God, you know, access to God means you have wisdom, you have strength, you have peace. But not only that, when you place your faith in Jesus, you have eternal life. The moment that you place it, Jesus Christ, we will get to this in John eventually, in chapter 5. He said that every person that hears his words and believes in him who sent him has eternal life. Not will have. The moment that you place your faith in him, you have passed from death to life, and you have eternal life. My prayer is that this number of studies that we're going to do on the first chapter of the book of Daniel will work for the salvation of many and to strengthen the faith of many more so that many Daniels will come out of this and will be a true impact to this generation because we desperately need it. Let's pray. Father, um, I want to thank you, Lord, for, for your word, for the models that you left in your word for us to follow. But I want to ask especially, Lord, for our hearts. I ask that our hearts will be so soft when we hear every single thing that you have said to us through these studies and through our prayer and meditation of this word that will be truly transformed into trusting you. That we will really get to know you personally, Father. We know that you're a good God. We know that you're a faithful God. Help us to put entirely our trust in you and to live accordingly. I ask these things in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.